I've lost count of how many times I've taken people through this through the years. Um, I was introduced to it, goodness, 16 years ago, give or take. But I'm going to tell a little bit of the background on it, and we'll talk about it and open it up a little bit. As we get started, I want us to pray together. I'm stalling just a little bit for Russ because he's going he's gonna to put us on. We've got several people that are working with our student ministry that can't be in here but wanted to go through it with us. We've got a few at home, and then also some of the ladies who are involved in the ladies' ministry wanted to be a part. So we just, someone suggested, why don't you throw it on Facebook Live just like you do Sunday? And we're like, great idea. So that's what we're going to do. So we'll have that up there. Is it going? Is it good to go? Great. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Great to see everybody, and then we'll just dive in, hit the ground running. Father, in Jesus' name, we come before you as sons and daughters. We position and posture ourselves as disciples, as students, as learners, as pupils. We're here as followers of Jesus, wanting to learn, wanting to grow. And so, Father, we're going to do the hard work the hard but good work of laying strong foundations. Father, we know that if we have a strong foundation, that though the winds may blow, we may be bent, but we will never be broken when we have good foundations. So, Lord, I'm asking for a favor. Would you give us the grace to drive our root system spiritually deeper and deeper into solid ground? Because it's not if the storms come, it's when they come. Again, we may be bent, but we will never be broken because of our strong foundations. And so I hold this up to you. I give it to you. And I'm asking a favor as a son. Would you give us the grace to truly develop a discipleship culture here at Oak Hills Fredericksburg? That we would be known as followers of Jesus, as disciples of Jesus Christ. But not just as disciples who sit and receive, but disciples who are active. Not passive, but active in making disciples and fulfilling the great commission, the apostolic mandate. And so, Lord, as we step into this uh, over the next few weeks, Lord, we lean into it. And we say, Lord, teach us. So I'm asking a favor, Father. Would you open our eyes that we may see, open our ears that we may hear, and would you open our hearts that we may know the truth that makes us free? And Father, as John 8.36 tells us, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. So we thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen and amen. Now, I don't know how many, or we may, are we out of the purple books now, Russ? Did we give away our last one? All right, we've got more coming. We've ordered more, and so we'll have a shipment coming in in the next few days. So we'll have them uh, over the next few days. I don't know when they're going to arrive, but Kim left us a note saying that they have been ordered. So, but you're good to go for today and this week because we're not actually going to dive into chapter one. We're going to do some background and talk a little bit about, because we want to set it up, because I also knew that we'd have some others probably joining us. So I didn't want to get out too quick, too far. One little uh, housekeeping thing here. Um, Austin and Kate McIntosh and their family are going to be moving. He's transitioning from our student pastor to, in a sense, for a season, our missionary in residence. They're going to be moving to Northern Ireland and serving a wonderful church in Lisburn. It's just outside of Belfast. And they're going to be moving there to do student ministry as well as other 
kinds of ministry there. Uh, we were able to meet uh, Pastor Brian Agnew and his wife Mary and his daughter Elizabeth when we were out there uh, about a month ago and had a great visit with them and just really sensed that the Lord was opening a door for us to have a, a UK connection for missions. That's something that's been very near and dear to my heart for years, but I've just never had that, that connection per se. I do have another friend in Scotland who's a pastor and missionary that is also an open door. So some doors are cracking open for us to actually be involved. I've done a lot of things in Mexico through the years and Guatemala, some in, the, in uh, Asia as well, but I've always had such a heart and passion for the UK, but just not a way or not, a, not that contact. That door is now open. So we'll be sending them off um, at the end of the summer. They'll be making that transition. And uh, so we want to be in prayer for them, but also we want to rally around them and see how we can support them and pray about how we can get involved in what our role individually and corporately is in order to support them and help them uh, do this. So they are having a mission luncheon, and basically it's an information. It's going to be short and to the points, one hour start to finish, and it's on Sunday, April 28th. So we'll continue to announce that, but I did want to get that information. Do make plans to, to attend, and even if it's just to hear the story of how God has coordinated and opened the doors for them and given them grace and favor as they make that transition. So that'll be Sunday, April 28th from 12.15 to 1.15 in the family room, formerly known as the conference room. So it'll be right over here uh, next door to us. So there's information here. If you want that, we're going to have these up here, and I'll just leave them right here. And feel free to pick them up. We'll be talking about this over the next few weeks. So I want to just share a little bit about this this saying that you see back there, it says, uh, have you done the purple book? And I know that's not great grammar, but it works. And the question it, it, that that we want to ask and continue to ask and begin to have as a part of our culture is this idea of, have you done the purple book? Now, we're going to open the purple book. We're going to look into it. We're going to see what it is and, and cover some, just an overview tonight. But what the idea behind this is, is that I'm trying to think of how, what year it was, 2002, 2001, 2002. Uh, we had moved to Midland, Texas. I was working for an organization called Hope for Tomorrow. We were a child placement agency, and I was the community director for that branch of that office. So we, we took children that were wards of the state. We took parents, and we recruited parents and families to do foster care for these children. So my job as the community director, I was a director over that office. So I did the hiring and firing, and I worked with therapists and got people lined out, and then I also trained parents how to take care of these at-risk children. And so uh, that's what took us to Midland, Texas from Brownwood. When we were there, we got involved in a church called Mid-Cities Community Church. That's where we met uh, the Stefanovs there and the Banks. The Banks were a little bitty then, and so they were like, do you think they look like children now because they still do to me? They were really children then. But, uh, but that's where we met and where we had, had some history together and a lot of common friends and common culture. We were a part of a movement called Every Nation. Back then, it was called Morningstar International. And so they eventually changed the name in 2004 or 5. Um, but that was what it was called then. And our colors were blue and gold. And it was a church planting movement. And so everything, I mean, our big thing was a Bible and a passport. Let's go conquer the world. 
And so, so now ours is a Bible, a passport, and the purple book, and let's go conquer the world. So it's, we've upgraded a little bit. So that was where I was introduced to this thing called the purple book. And I remember the first time I heard about it, I was like, what is the purple book? I mean, the name was kind of threw me a little curveball. And uh, so uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that. It's Harvest Vision. I'm going to move through a couple of things. So um, let me do this. Here we go. So, intro to the purple book, that's what we're doing tonight, the apostolic mandate. We're going to talk about that, and that's, a, that's an odd name, but uh, it's actually just another way to say the Great Commission, because that's really what it is, and um, anybody know what the Great Commission is? Where's it found? Okay, Matthew 28, 18, 19, also, where else? Mark chapter... Last chapter of Mark, Mark 16. We're going to take a look at both of those. And so, um, so it's every believer's call to make disciples. The reason we want to go strong on this is um, coming to Oak Hills out of the culture I was a part of. So being a part of Mid-Cities Church, back to Midland, Texas, being a part of that church, I stepped into, and they had a banner on their back wall. You guys may remember this. And it said, every nation in our generation... And I don't know about you, but that's a pretty bold statement. Every nation in our generation. And I remember seeing that, uh, and it said Morningstar International, I think, on the banner. But I remember seeing that as, as stepping into this church for the first time. And Annette and I, our mentality was, if they have that kind of vision, that's what I want to be a part of. Now, did I, in my mind, think that in my generation, we could reach every nation? At the time, I probably didn't, but I'm actually beginning to see potential for that with technology and things that Pioneer Bible Translators are doing and Wycliffe Bible Translators. They actually have technology. Hey, how's it going? Come on through. <laughs> I already talked about your dinner, so okay, we're good. That's, that's him. That's awesome. <laughs> So, so anyway, I thought, wow, that's a bold mission statement. If that's what you're about, reaching every generation, I mean, every nation in our generation, I want to be a part of somebody who has that kind of vision. I mean, you know, right, aim for the sun, at least you might hit the moon, right? So it's a big, bold vision. So, so I joined the church. We were there the first day. Um, Annette was with Rachel Faith, our little... 18-year-old, but she was tiny. She was a baby then. So Annette stayed home with, we called her Rachel then, now she's Faith, but Rachel Faith. And she stayed home with her, and I went to the, to the class. We call ours Life Without Kills. I don't remember what they called theirs. But, but I stepped in, and when I heard their vision, and they were talking about every nation in our generation, they were talking about this 2020 vision where they wanted to reach, you know, every nation by 2020. I mean, it was just like massive vision. And I joined the church right then and there without a net. I, I didn't even, I, I was so excited about the vision. I was just there. I'm in. Sign me up. And then later I went home. I was like, oh, I didn't even tell Annette. We just joined the church. So I got home and said, hey, by the way, we joined that church, and I'm going to be playing on the worship team like in the next two weeks. So we hit the ground running with this church. Well, what I didn't realize is not only was I connecting with that church, I was connecting with a larger movement called Morningstar International who was driving this vision to take a Bible and a passport and win the world. Now, that sounds maybe a little bit um, presumptuous, but what 
I have to tell you is that they're actually making a dent in this thing. And when I began to find out what they were into and what they were up to, I was just blown away. And so we were a part of that movement for 12 and a half, 13 years. Uh, the church that I pastored in Abilene, which is Grace Point Church, was a part of that movement. Like I said, they changed the name to Every Nation. They were based out of Manila in the Philippines initially, and I'll tell you the story about that. So this idea that every believer's call to make disciples, um, that's us. That's you. A lot of churches, you attend, you listen, you go to Sunday school, you serve, you're asked to give money and tithe, and then you go home. Maybe get in a small group, maybe get involved in, in a ministry or a program of some kind. But there's not a lot of churches that are actually challenging followers of Jesus to not only be a disciple, but to make disciples. And it's the very thing that Jesus told us in the Great Commission, the apostolic mandate. That was to go and make disciples. The very thing he told us to do is a thing we're not doing well. And it's actually a huge question. So, a couple of things just to set this up. A funny thing happened on the way back from the printer. So let me give you a little bit of understanding of why this is called the Purple Book. Initially, the colors for Morningstar International, when they first started all their print and their branding, was actually blue and gold. So they, they set up a huge order. Uh, this was in Manila in the Philippines. They had a big order of books. It went to press. When it came back from the, from the press, they opened the boxes. And when they opened the boxes, the color was purple instead of blue and gold. And, they were, and so they called the printer. The printer said, please bring them back. We'll print them. We like, they were like, we need them right now. We've got students in our, what was called at that time, Victory Leadership Institute. We've got students who need these like stat. So we're just going to go ahead and use them. Well, when they started handing out the purple books, people started saying, I need a purple book. And then it just sort of caught traction. And then it became the purple book. And now it is officially known as the purple book. And uh, so these were supposed to be blue and gold. So here's the thing. Let's talk a little bit. That's why they're purple. Just so now you know the story. It was an accident and it stuck. So the golden question in the church world. This is a, this is a question that churches, particularly in the West, are asking. There were churches that have done other things, like, for example, in Colombia, Bogota, Colombia, with uh, small group ministries took off. It was called cell groups back then, and they had an explosion of a discipleship culture down there. They called it revival. It, it spawned the small group ministry back in the 80s and 90s, and it didn't take in the United States as well, but it did in other places. In Manila, in the Philippines, it took off, and what happened was they began to establish small groups and discipleship groups where they were making disciples who were making disciples. So the idea was, if I got saved today, then 12 hours from now, I'm qualified to take somebody else through a discipleship track because I'm 12 hours ahead of them. And as long as I stay ahead of the curve, we're good to go. And they took this idea, and what that created was a multiplication culture. So in the States, we think in terms of addition. Well, we'll reach one here and one there. Their mentality in other parts of the world is more of a multiplication mentality. And what happened was these things took off. But here in the States, we have lagged behind when it comes to reaching people. Now, Jesus did not tell us to go make converts. 
Jesus told us to make disciples, assuming that as the word went forth and goes forth, that actually people will be converted, they will repent and be saved and give their hearts to Christ. And then at that point, now we have a responsibility, and that is to make disciples. So when we see that scripture in Matthew 28, and we'll look at it and unpack it a little bit, there's this assumption that evangelism is already going forth. Jesus doesn't even say, go tell them about me, although he does talk about preaching the kingdom and, and being a witness, but he assumes that's going to happen because it's an assumption. But unfortunately, here in the West, that's not an assumption in the church at large. The assumption is, is that we have a staff, we pay them, and they're supposed to go win people to Jesus, and we're supposed to go visit them on Tuesday night at Tuesday night visitation, and then we're supposed to do this, this thing together. But that's not the biblical model. The biblical model is that the church staff is actually supposed to be represent the five-fold ministry, which is the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. And Ephesians chapter 4 says, for, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. And so our job isn't to be out there doing it, although I like being a player coach. I like being in the game too. But I actually, my responsibility and role is to equip you to make disciples and do what Jesus told us to do. To equip you to be the witness Jesus has called you to be. Russ's job is to equip you. Austin's job is to equip our students. Annette and, and their team is to equip our children. And so that's how it's supposed to be. And that's the biblical model, the biblical mandate. So unfortunately, in the States, that's been slow to catch. And we've built churches around this idea that the pastor does the work that we pay him to do. And as long as we pay him, not too much though, we got to keep him poor and humble. So we got to keep, you know, we don't want to do too much because we don't want him to get proud, prideful and puffed up. And so we've built this really dysfunctional church model that has not done well. And for the most part is in decline across America. So now there's a new generation, young leaders coming up that have a different mentality, and it's a mentality of multiplication. So we see mega churches. Be careful about criticizing mega churches. They're reaching a lot of people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just because a church is big doesn't mean it's bad or that they cheated to get there. It could be God's blessing what they're doing because maybe they're doing what he told them to do, and that is to make disciples. And so you won't hear me criticizing other churches. You'll hear me clapping and going, go, go, go. Let's pour gasoline on the fire. Amen? Let's reach our world. So here's the golden question. You see it on the screen, and it's this. The golden question in the church world is this. How do we make disciples? And that, that sounds simple until you actually start talking about it. Because what do we mean? When I brought it up at a meeting in Oak Hills with some of the leaders, I threw out because I never heard talk about evangelism or making disciples. We talked about Bible study series. We talked about 32-week series. We talked about getting books out and all that. But I was like, excuse me, um, what about evangelism and what about discipleship? Well, what do you mean by discipleship? I mean, what do you mean? I mean what Jesus means by discipleship. That means we, we make those and we teach them, we baptize them and teach them everything he taught, and they become followers of Jesus, and then they make disciples who do the same. It's, it's not that complicated. And so coming into the Oak Hills world, it was, it was a bit, it was a foreign concept. 
It wasn't strongly taught. And so ever since I got here three years ago, it has been my heartbeat and my passion, and it literally keeps me up at night sometimes, thinking how do we begin to create a discipleship culture so that we're doing what Jesus commanded us to do? Because when we step into the will of God, let me tell you what that attracts. It attracts the favor of God. Did you hear that? When we step into the will of the Father and what he has told us to do and commanded us to do, it will attract his favor. It will attract open doors. It will kick open doors. We're crying out for a harvest. We're crying out for revival, awakening, and outpouring. But we have to align ourselves with his will and what he's already mandated us to do. The Great Commission is the great command. It's a great order. It's, it's our orders, our marching orders. And when we step into that and we begin to do that, he commands the blessing in that place. Anybody here want to be blessed? I'm not talking about driving a nicer car. I'm talking about reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, transforming a culture, transforming a community and beyond. Amen? So how do we make disciples? Well, maybe we should just do better and more programs. So we'll just, re- we'll just tweak what we're already doing. You know what the definition of insanity is? Y'all have all heard this, right? Keep doing the same thing, expecting a different result, right? And that's basically what we do. We keep rearranging the, the, the chairs on the Titanic as it's sinking. Thinking, okay, if we just rearrange the chairs, then it'll float. It's not working. The church in America is in decline. All mainline denominations are either stagnant or in decline right now. Southern Baptists two years ago, three years ago, reported for the first time in their history stagnation and decline for the first time ever. And so we're seeing that happen now more and more. So better and more programs, not the answer. How do we make disciples? How about more Bible study opportunities? If it's, if, because, you know, it's the Word of God that transforms. So if we just have more Bible studies then we'll see more disciples and we'll see the church grow again. But we've tried that. We've tried that. But what we've turned into are spiritual couch potatoes. It's like eating Pringles on the couch and drinking a Dr. Pepper every day, just drinking, eating, drinking, eating, but we don't do anything with it. We're not active. We're not activating. We're passive in nature. So coming to endless Bible studies will not make, it will not, it will not make you mature. It will make you spiritually fat. It's like spiritual carbs. It'll just make you fat. So you may have a lot of Bible knowledge, but if you're not activating and doing anything with it, guess what? We're not going anywhere. We're just loading up. We're getting bigger and bigger, but we're not actually doing anything. So more Bible study opportunities? Maybe that's not the answer. More shame and condemnation. There we go. Let's just guilt everybody into reading their Bibles. We've tried that, right? Have, have any of you been in a church that did that? Oh, yeah, me too. How about more shame and condemnation? Not that everybody doesn't feel it already. Let's just heap some more on. Let's just put more weights on and just see, well, you can't lift what you're carrying. Let's just add weight, right? So that's not working. How about guilting? Let's guilt you into studying the Bible. Let's guilt you into reading your Bible. So we're going to make a commitment. Oh, man. We're going to make a commitment. We're going to read the Bible in a year. I have never done that well. I'm just confession right here. Uh, Checking a box every day doesn't bring life to me. How about more accountability and rules? We just need to be stricter, don't we? We just need to tighten the screws down on this thing because everybody's just running running loose and, and just not... So let's just tighten the screws down. How do we make disciples? Well, guess what? We've tried all that. 
And some of us have been in churches that did that. It didn't work. It didn't work. So here's the golden question in the church world. How do we make disciples? Here's the answer. And this is really simple. Answer, the nece that necessity is often the mother of invention. You ever heard that before? Necessity is often the mother of invention. And I want to tell you a little story about the miracle in Manila. I've shared this with our Wednesday night crew, but I want to bring it back up. In 1994, a group of young people, uh, Rice Brooks was a part of that, Steve Merle, Phil Bonasso, their families, they had a heart to go to the Philippines and preach a revival. Rice is, a, is a, an evangelist. Uh, he wrote the book, God is Not Dead, 1 and 2. They made movies out of that, and so that's, that's Rice, uh, Dr. Rice Brooks. So Rice had this heart to go, so he gathers this team. They go to Manila, and the time of year that they go to Manila, which they didn't calculate very well, was the time of year where the cyclones hit. Every year they have this season where cyclones just inundate, flood, and it's just, it's horrific. Not only that, there was a lot of political unrest at the time. So not only was the weather the worst possible weather of the time of the year to go, but there was political unrest and there was rioting in the streets the whole time they were there. They had planned to be there for about six weeks, give or take, depending on how the Lord moved. So they go there at the time when there's the most political unrest in the country, and which sounds a little bit like the book of Acts if you think about it. But not that they were thinking that. They just, that's when they went and there it was. So when they got there, they secured a building and the building was actually in a basement, their, their big meeting space. And they started reaching out to the, what they call the university belt, the uni belt there. And that's all the colleges that are all in one area. And they went down there to the U belt and they started inviting students to come to this revival. And the first couple of nights, hardly anybody showed up because there was rioting in the streets and the storms had gotten so bad that the basement where they were meeting started to flood. So, I mean, it was like all the wrong things were happening. So there's no way God's going to show up, right? Sometimes God has a divine setup planned in the worst possible scenarios. And I found that to be true in my own experience. When everything's clicking and going great, we almost don't need God. We're not even crying out for him. But when everything's going bad, it sometimes postures us to begin to cry out in desperation. For him because we need him. If he doesn't show up, this isn't going to happen. So what happened? They were crying out. They were praying. And like the third night, a bunch more students showed up. And then all of a sudden, it began to catch traction. And then what was happening is the riots were so bad in the streets that students would duck into the building. And there were students outside on the sidewalk. Hey, come in here. It's safe. Come in here. It's safe. And they started coercing all these students off the street into the, into the worship service. And they had a band by this time. They were several days into it. It was picking up momentum. They were pulling kids off the street that were riding. And God began to move and show up. And every time Rice would preach, it, there'd be 50, 60, 70, 100 students would come forward and give their heart to Jesus. Now, immediately, knowing that they were only going to be there for a few weeks, they had the mentality and the mindset, which is great, of we're going to be gone, so we have to equip them to be disciples, and then to make disciples. So they, they threw together this little booklet that we now call the Purple Book. And they did this in real time. Because they're like, we got to have something to leave with them. 
They put together this the beginnings of this, probably on napkins in a restaurant initially, just trying to get something down because they knew they were going to leave and they had to equip. So they took the first bank of young people, these are all university students, who gave their heart to Jesus, and they sat down with them. And all day long, but until the service that night, they had classes going where they were walking them through the basics. They were talking to them about these issues right here. And if you have your purple book, you can look at the table of contents. They they talked to him about sin and salvation. They talked to him about lordship and obedience. Well, you don't hear that talked about much. Lordship and obedience? What do you mean lordship? Jesus is Lord? Well, I know we say it, but what does it mean? We don't talk about it much. You mean you're going to put a demand on me? You mean I'm, I'm to submit to him? Uh, yeah, hello. You're a follower of Jesus, not a leader of Jesus. Amen. How about repentance and baptism? They went through all of these. The Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts. Hey, if we're going to leave a bunch of brand new Christians to make disciples, they better be empowered with the Holy Spirit to do this thing. Because you can't do it on your own. So we need the Spirit, the Helper, the Paraclete, Parakletos, to come alongside and help. So in spiritual gifts, because they're going to need gifts as we birth these new churches out of this movement. Spiritual hunger in God's Word. The authority and power of the word. Discipleship and leadership. Spiritual family and church life. Prayer and worship. Faith and hope. Biblical prosperity and generosity. Evangelism and world missions. Resurrection and judgment. So these were the basic tenets that they pulled together to say, we've got to equip these guys before we go, before we get on a plane. So Steve and Deborah... They had planned to be there six weeks. They actually volunteered to stay back a little bit longer because they had hundreds of new converts. And they said, we will stay here and for a while until we got to get back to the States and until we run out of money, we will, we will disciple, the, we'll do classes every day. And that's what they did for weeks and weeks. And they took them through the first draft, so to speak, of this booklet. By the time they got ready to leave, about six plus weeks left, came by and they were praying and they just did not feel a peace to go back to the United States. They said, now we've got this core. These guys are ready to go. We've got people that were getting saved on one day. We're going through these basics, starting these lessons. And then the next day, they were taking another brand new convert through. And what happened is it's like exponential it just went exponential. And they started, it, went, it was multiplication instead of addition. And they had brand new Christians leading the, the newer, newer Christians through this. And then they would, in a day or two, take the next group through. So it started this multiplication of discipleship. Sounds a little bit like the New Testament, doesn't it? It's exactly, it was, you could say, that's like the blind leading the blind. Yeah, it kind of is. But fortunately, the Holy Spirit was in the middle of it. Were mistakes made? Absolutely. Did they get off the rails? Of course they did, but ministry is messy, folks. We're going to all get off the rails at one point or another. And praise the Lord, He loves us so much, He'll bring us back to center line and get us back on. That's how much He loves us. It's called correction, something we don't talk much about in the church today because we don't hurt anybody's feelings, right? If I, I can't correct you because you might leave the church and go down the street. Well, you might. But as, as a leader, we have a responsibility to correct. That's part of our role. Amen? 
<laughs> wow, thank you. Several people said amen. That's shocker. <laughs> I'm just playing. So here's what was happening. All that was generating momentum. And it just blew up. So Steve and Deborah Merle stayed in the Philippines 26 years. They never went back. They made their home there. They filed for their visas. They ended up moving there. And they started Victory Fellowship, which today, I don't know. I wish I could have got the stats for today. The stats I know are from five years ago. Five years ago, they were, show, they were having 60,000 people on average on a weekend in Manila and throughout the Manila area. At that time, five years ago, they were running 113 services on the weekend. Think about it, 60,000 people. That's not, their, that's not like back in the Baptist church where we kept the role and never took anybody off even if they died. We just left them on there. Just leave them on there. They can't move their letter now. Just leave it on there. So, I mean, we did pad our, pad our numbers. But I'm telling you, they weren't pad, this isn't padding their numbers. I don't, it could be 80,000 by now. Who knows? Because, again, they're, they're continuing to exponentially grow. Over 113 services. We visited in 2005-ish, and we were just blown away. We actually sat in on one of those groups, and we thought this would be a bunch of spiritual giants. And I don't know. The guy leading it probably got saved three weeks ago. I don't know. They were, it was just elementary, and they, they had their purple books out, and they were taking a group of guys. Annette met with a group of girls. I met with a group of guys, and I was expecting this deep Bible study, and they were just talking about these things right here, and they were just eating it up like candy. It was like the Spirit of the Lord was so on this that all these brand new converts were saying, we need help. Teach me how to live. Teach me what to do. Somebody help me. And they were leading them. And this was happening. We were in the Galleria Mall in Manila. And that night, just that night, there were 13 groups meeting that night in the mall. 13. All going through the Purple Book together. All of them probably just a few weeks born again. And yet they were leading a group. They had kids and young people leading groups. It was amazing. I've never seen anything like it. And that's when you begin to realize that might be what revival looks like. We think revival is all about having a big three-ring circus in church someday. And, oh, my Holy Spirit showed up. It's more about what's going on out there in our culture. Where we live, work, and play than it is what's going on in here. Amen? Remember, this is the filling station. This is where you get equipped, trained, and then released to go outside these walls and reach the next generation. So the miracle of Manila happened, and it's continuing to happen, and victory is flourishing right now. Steve and, and Deborah have since moved back to the States, and they brought that to Franklin, Tennessee, and they took a church that was dying, and they also began to implement this they called it a 412 strategy based on Ephesians 412. He gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. And then it goes on from there. So that's the strategy that they brought. And at first it didn't work in Franklin. They floundered for two years. Remember, Annette? They floundered and Deborah said, these Americans, you know, she's been in the Philippines for 26 years. She's come back to America. And like, these Americans are lazy. They don't study. They won't, they're not excited about anything. We can't can't get them to show up. She was just shocked. She was like, I want to go back home to the Philippines. But what happened was they stayed after it long enough that when it finally caught, it took off and it began to grow. 
and the groups begin to spread like wildfire and they begin to see the same dynamic. Then they merged that church back with the home church, the mother church, and they absorbed all that back in. But they did prove that it could be done here in the States. And, and it's a beautiful thing. So let's talk about this. Breaking the discipleship code, all right? A few things I jotted down here. Uh, it may be small print for some of you, but just I'll read it to you. So breaking the, Ed Stetzer, who is one of the most prolific writers and teachers on church growth in our time, uh, is a very dear friend of Every Nation Ministries, and, and we had him speak at our conferences. He's a Southern Baptist. Uh, I think at one time uh, he ran the research arm of Lifeway, which is the Southern Baptist, uh, their publishing house. He ran the research arm, and he... he threw out some things, and he writes the foreword in the most uh, current edition. So here's a couple things you can look at the screen. He says this, we must value the transformation of an individual's heart through three things. Proximity to Jesus and his word. That means getting close to him. So it's the heart getting close to Jesus. It's not, it's not about another lesson, another study, another program, another thing. It's actually about Jesus himself. When we were in Abilene, uh, no, when we were in Brownwood, we planted a church called River of Life Church, and I made this big banner that said, it's all about Jesus. And I just constantly harped on this thing. It's not about our church. It's about Him. It's not about our programs. It's about Him. We did a coffee house that took off and had a lot of success. It's not about the River Coffee House. It's about Him. Everything was pointed back to Him proximity to Jesus and his word. Two, being changed by his spirit. Unless you are filled with and overflowing with the power of the Holy Spirit, you are incapable of making disciples who will reproduce and make more disciples. You cannot do it in your flesh. You cannot do it in your own power. And who would want to? It's exhausting. But when you're energized by the spirit, it's like catching a wave of grace. And you're simply riding the wave as it carries you where you need to go. You feel energy. It's like you've got wind in your sails. It's pushing you along and carrying you along. And you're just staying on the wave and riding it. It's amazing. It's not, it happens just organically and naturally. And three, being personally obedient to Jesus' teachings. The, the transformation of our heart is when we're obedient to what he tells us to do. Understanding lordship. Jesus is Lord. I'm not. Jesus is the Lord. He's the master. And I'm here to, yes, I'm a friend of God. Yes, I'm, I'm his son. Yes, I'm family. But he is also Lord and King, both. And we do okay on the familiarity part and the, the familial part, but we need to also understand he's King and Lord too. And be okay with that. Not afraid of it, but welcome that. And say, I get to co-labor with him, collaborate. I get to co-operate with him, cooperate. Isn't that a beautiful thing? I'm a joint heir with Jesus, and I get to co-labor and cooperate with him in this endeavor of making disciples. Here's the second one. A simple, here, breaking the discipleship code. What do we do? We need a simple and reproducible discipleship process that can be easily employed by anyone who has stepped over the line to follow. I put all this in my words, by the way. It's, it's Ed's material, but I, I reworded it. Anyone, and, and I want you to know this, anybody can do this. 
This is not rocket science. I don't know about you, but I love Geico commercials. I lo- Every time one comes on, I'm like, what are they doing now? They're hysterical. But I love the one. My favorite series was, it's so simple, even a caveman can do it. Those were my favorite. They've even brought those back. They're so good, right? Have y'all seen those? Y'all are just staring at me. Okay, anybody laugh ever? Okay, all right. Come on, help help me somebody. I love those commercials. They make me laugh, and it just gets a kick out of me because I just laugh hysterically when these come on. But here's the idea. We, wanna, we want to have something that is so simple. A caveman can do it. A new Christian can do it. An old Christian can do it. That idea that you can't teach an old dog new tricks is a lie from the pit of hell. Right, Miss Charlene? Come on, girl. This girl's on fire right now. You get within 10 feet of her, she'll have you doing something. Right, Steve? I'm telling you, she got, she got a hold of Steve. And she turned him every which way but loose. And now he's going to be ministering in a nursing home tomorrow. <laughs> so when, when, she, when she targeted him, it was over. So anyway, that fire, that fire. We don't retire here, we refire here. Because if there's a pulse, there's still a promise and a purpose. Amen? So we have this simple deal, and I I put this, no perfect people allowed. You do not have to be perfect to make disciples because all you're doing is pointing them to the perfect one, and it's not you. We're not making disciples to ourselves. We're making disciples unto Jesus, amen? So so if I'm leading somebody and I'm meeting with somebody, I'm going through, they're not my disciple. They're Jesus' disciple, and I have a responsibility to steward them and walk with them and have God conversations about this stuff. So they're not mine. No perfect people allowed. You need to get a hold of that. Because some of you may be sitting there thinking, I don't have enough Bible knowledge. The beauty of it is you don't have to. You don't have to. I'm telling you, to see these kids in that mall in Manila in 2005, they knew very little to nothing about the Bible because they were born again recently themselves, but they're taking a whole group of people through this and they're learning and discovering together. We're better together. So it's not about somebody who has superior intellect and superior maturity and superior Bible knowledge condescending in a way and looking down upon my disciple. Here's the bottom line. You need to be in a discipleship chain. And what that looks like is you need a Paul in your life. You need somebody who's been there, done that, who's run further than you've run, and who you can look to and say, when I grow up, I want to be like that. You need a Paul in your life. But you also need a Barnabas in your life. You need a Barnabas who's a peer, who's a friend, who, who's your cheerleader, who's got your back, who, who looks at you and says, you've got this. Who looks at you and says, this isn't going to be the end. I had a friend call me today in distress. He just got laid off of his job. And he's like, Jimmy, man, he's 51 years old, not sure what he's going to do. And I said, you've got this. You've got this. God's got you. I said, think about your history in God. What was I being today? A Barnabas, not a Paul, a Barnabas. I said, think about your history in God and what he's brought you through. Look at what he's already done in your life. You think he brought you this far to set you up for failure? No, he's got this. He's got you. That's a Barnabas spirit. And it it was just like, I was anointed with a Barnabas spirit today. I, I was just speaking life into him. So we need a Paul, we need a Barnabas. But guess what? You need a Timothy in your life. Timothy was a disciple of Paul's. He was his spiritual son. He even called him Timothy, my son. He told Timothy, he said, look, don't let people look down on your youthfulness, but by your example, prove, prove who you are. 
by your example, by your purity, by your life. And so Paul poured into Timothy and raised Timothy up. Timothy became a leader, actually became a shepherd, a pastor. And so we need a Paul in our life, we need a Barnabas in our life, and we need Timothys in our life. And it could be more than one. And so my question is, can you right now, as you sit here, think about those people in your life? Do you have them? Who's your Paul? Who's your Barnabas? Who's your Timothy? I'm telling you, if we will all be intentional about aligning ourselves in the discipleship chain, I'm telling you, the church will explode. So think about it. Who, who's your Paul? Who's your Timothy? And who's your Barnabas? We need a multiplication strategy that has the capacity to reach many people simply and effectively. That's why I have constantly, consistently gone back to this simple book. All it is, if you've had time to look at it at all, all it is is leading you to scriptures and asking you questions so that you actually learn how to use your Bible, your tablet, or your phone to find things in the Bible. You get familiar with the Bible. That's the point. It was designed that way so that it would get you into the scriptures and you now are answering question, questions that are being asked of you about the scriptures so you have to think. You have to use your brand new sanctified imagination and mind to think about and answer questions. As you do that, it opens up a, a new continent of discovery, even on passages of scriptures you've read a hundred times. I've done this book more times than I can count. I decided to not go back to my old messed up one because I even have it, my old one spiral bound because it was falling apart. So I started a brand new one to have, so I wouldn't have any marks. I could just start a new one. And as I'm, go Bill and I are going through it together. And as I've been going through the first three chapters, I mean, I'm, it's, my mind's blowing up. Because I'm seeing things that I've read before, but the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And when you dive into it, it, it comes alive. It's layer upon layer of truth. It's stacked with truth. So every time you're into it, and you maybe have read that scripture before, it's like another layer gets peeled back. That's called revelation. It gets revealed. Peel layer by layer. So we need a multiplication strategy as a capacity to reach many people simply and effectively. Can you imagine if everybody in this group right here, just this amount of people, 80, 70, 80 people right here. How many were in here? 63 people. If 63 people all had a Timothy just this next year. And then that Timothy next year, those Timothys had Timothys next year. Can you imagine what would happen? This thing would blow up. And we'd be making disciples and we would be aligning ourselves with the very thing Jesus told us to do. A culture of discipleship. Here's what we need. And this was, this was my heart. A culture of discipleship. Instead of being passive spectators, we become active participants in the mission of God. Jesus did not save your soul just to reserve you a spot in heaven so you could just be a better person here on earth. He actually has a commission, a mandate on your life. You are called. One of our values here, one of my favorite values of Oak Hills, and when we were looking at coming here and making our decision of well, are we going to accept this offer, are we going to accept it, I went on the values page of Oak Hills, and I saw the one that captured my heart, and it's this. Every believer a minister. Every believer a minister. It's not just about me. I'm called to this role, but you too are called 
Maybe not to this role, but you're called to the sphere of influence that God has given you, where you live, where you work, and where you play. And the call on your life is to be a missionary within that context. And God is bringing people into your path every day, every other day, every other week that are there because he divinely orchestrated your paths to cross because you're supposed to be living your life on mission. When we gave our life to Jesus Christ, we stepped over the line, we said, we're all in. We said, Jesus, I give you my life. I give you my past. And he forgave you of every sin you ever committed, the ones you blew today and the ones you're going to do tomorrow. He already covered all of those front to back. It's eternal life. And eternal life doesn't start when you die. It starts right now. Here and now, we are stepping already into eternal life. We're here. We're in it, right? In it to win it. So we're in it. Now, in the context of that, he gives us an assignment that now we have been bought with a price. We no longer own ourselves. We are no longer our own. We've been bought with a price, the scripture says, and now I am his, and now I am his to do what he wants me to do. So I have to say, Lord, what's your assignment on my life? It's funny. People will run around going, I just want to know God's will for my life. I'm going, I already know God's will for your life. Go and make disciples. There it is. Well, yeah, but I want to know what... No, no, no. I already know what his will is. If you will do that, he'll bring you clarity on the other details you're looking for. But when you'll get in alignment and do the first thing, he'll show you the second, third, fourth thing. But we got to step into and get in alignment with his will and with his ways. And when we align with him, clarity comes. It's that, that scene from, from Raiders of the Lost Ark. When Harrison Ford's standing on that precipice and it looks like it's a big, he's going for the grail that's on the other side of the canyon. Do y'all remember this scene? Anybody remember? Am I just talking to air? Okay. So these students are running through going, I remember that. That's cool. So he, remember he says, it's a step of faith. Remember he even says it out of his mouth. It's a step of faith. And he does like this. Do you remember what happened? It went solid under his feet. And then when he stepped out over that cliff all of a sudden, in 3D form, the, the, the ang angle of the camera changes, and you see a bridge that you couldn't see before. It was there all along, but he had to step out on faith in order to do it. We're called to step out on faith. We step out into this thing, and as we do, it appears under our feet. His word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It's not a halogen beam that shows you the next five miles. I wish it was. But that isn't it. It'll show you the next step and the next step and the next. Amen? So that's what we do. We follow him into that. A culture of discipleship. Instead of being passive spectators, we become active participants in the mission of God. You have a mission from God. You are on an assignment. You have been given an assignment. What is the will of God for my life, Pastor Jimmy? You're, the will of God for you is to make disciples. It was the last thing before being beamed up is the last thing he told us to do. And he conferred authority upon us to do it. And we'll look at that real quick. So the Great Commission, or the Great Omission, which is it? The Great Commission or the Great Omission? For some, it has been the Great Omission. I got in a little trouble in seminary class because I popped off and said that one time, but I was pretty snarky back in the day. I was... Because we were talking about Mark chapter 16, and I was like, that's the great omission. But anyway, so I probably shouldn't have done that. I did repent to that professor later. The great commission, the great omission. Matthew 28, 16, 
Uh, and let me get it up there. There it is. Listen to this. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Jesus said, go and wait for me there. He said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show up. Remember, Jesus had been crucified, but then he was resurrected and appeared, and now he's spending time, and he's getting ready to ascend and go into heaven. So he's with them one last time. They're in Galilee to the mountain where Jesus told them to go, verse 17. When they saw him, they worshiped him. That literally means they didn't like go, oh, praise the Lord, hallelujah. That, that's what we do. They actually fell down on their faces. That's what it means. They bent over. They were before him because this is the risen Lord. Now he is who he says he is. We doubted him, but now here he is. But interesting, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. You're like, wait, there were 11 people there? No, no, there was a bunch of people there. It says his disciples. It wasn't just the 12 or the 11. Remember that we lost one. So it was 11 at the time, but it was actually all of the disciples. So it could have been 120, could have been 300, who knows? But it was a bunch. So it was all of his disciples. Many were there. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now he's saying this rhetorically, basically, and now I'm giving it to you. He's handing off the keys of the kingdom. And look what he says, Matthew 28, 19. Therefore, go. All right? I've highlighted some words here for emphasis, okay? On the right syllable, just so we can get it. So therefore, go. So that is the first thing we're supposed to do is go. Go where? Wherever he leads, wherever he tells us to go. But we're to go. We're not to stay. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Go and make disciples. We're to go, and our mandate, our commission, is to make disciples. And then here's what we're to do. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So what do we do? We have the teachings of Jesus in the Scriptures, and we're to, we're to teach them to obey those, those teachings. It's not that complicated. We complicate this thing. We, we, we do 32-week series and complicate it. It's not that complicated. Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Look at the highlights. Go, make disciples, baptize them, teach them, and then the promise, I'm with you always. I've got your back. You're not alone. I am with you. How is he with us? Help me, somebody. Holy Spirit. He said, it's expedient that I go away, because if I don't go away, then the Holy Spirit can't come to you. Because he was stuck in one place at one time because he was the son of man. He was in the flesh. But when he was, re when he was resurrected and he was seated with the Father, then the Holy Spirit was released upon all. Remember Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 10? The Holy Spirit was poured out on in Acts chapter 2 on the Jews, in Acts chapter 10 on the Gentiles. So now the Holy Spirit, he is with us. And that's called the promise of the Father in the scriptures. Mark 16, this is the one I got in trouble with in school for saying the great omission. And here's why, you'll see why. Verse 14, later Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. That's an interesting little caveat in there. He's like, you didn't even believe. Yeah, thank you. Huh? Oh, sorry, my bad. 
I'm doing this. Usually I have the back doing it. Are we good? Okay, sorry. I'm doing double, triple duty here. So here it is. As Jesus appeared to the eleven they were eating, he rebuked them for the lack of faith, their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he'd risen. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. The gospel is good news, not bad news, not so-so. It is good news. That's the gospel. He says, do that. And then he says this. In Mark, it's different, and, it's, and there's more to it than what we read in the Matthew account. But it's a parallel account. But, but Mark adds some things in here. Verse 16. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And we know that to be true because of John uh, 3, 16, 17, and 18 talks about those who don't believe will be condemned because they don't believe. Now, verse 17. And this is the part that we just sort of go, well, wait a minute, you know, I don't know about that. And these signs will accompany those who believe. Okay, so if you're a believer, a believing believer, and you're doing what we're called to do, and we're in alignment with his will and his ways, this is supposed to happen. We talked about this all during the fall when we did Awestruck. So this isn't new news. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. What name? The name of Jesus, powerful name. In my name, they will drive out demons. See, that, that makes everybody nervous. We suddenly get all, ooh, wait, should we even say that in church? That's scary. We, I saw a movie when I was in middle school called The Exorcist, and it had that kind of stuff in it. It scared me. It just terrified me. So we, we don't like to talk about it because we don't understand, and it just seems very uncomfortable and very third-worldish. But make no mistake... The demonic realm is very real and very much in effect. It's just nicer in Texas. It's sweeter in Texas. It's that religious person that hates your guts but comes up to you on Sunday and says, Brother, it's so good to see you. And they just hug and they might as well have daggers in your back. I know that's never happened to anybody here. I've been in the church world a long time. We're just sweet in Texas with it. We're like sweet tea. But in other places, it's a lot more out in the open. And it's interesting that in America, if a missionary comes from the third world country and tells us stories about demons, we're fascinated. But if somebody says it happened in Kerrville, we're, they're immediately suspect. Am I being real? Is this being honest enough? Because we, we don't want to acknowledge that that might happen in our civilized society. Have you driven on the I-10 lately? There's demons everywhere, I'm just saying. So, I'm telling you, it's happening all around us right now. Am I on the right scripture? Am I still? Okay, good. All right. Listen to this. So, in my name, this is what's going to happen. And this is the normal Christian life, y'all. This, it's laid, this is presented as this is what's going to happen. If you're a believer... These things are going to happen. So that begs a question, doesn't it? Why aren't these things happening? Just thought I'd throw that out there, but I'm not going to answer it. They will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. We've also covered that in the book of Acts in our journey. They will pick up snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people, and they will get well. Don't get tripped up on the snakes, poison stuff, because, again, we're talking about cultural norms, cultural things to that time. But you have to translate that into where we live. 
you have to translate that into where you live, in your world, in your realm. But I see some things here. The ability to cast out demons, the ability to speak in new tongues, the ability to overcome that which attacks, and the ability to lay hands on sick people and they will get well. So, moving along, verse 19. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven, and he sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples, what did they do? They went out. They departed from that place. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. So, even as they preached these things, it says accompany. Another translation says follow. Bottom line is this, we don't follow signs, signs follow us. We don't chase after stuff. We don't chase after manifestations. We don't chase, we don't look for a demon behind every rock or around every corner. Trust me, if they're real and in your vicinity and you're any kind of a threat, you'll know they're there. If you're not a threat, you won't. You, you'll never, it's, you'll be oblivious. This stuff's going on and you don't even know. But if you're a threat to their territory, it, trust me, you'll know. Last two scriptures and we're done. The promise of the Holy Spirit. So we know these things are going to happen, but here's the deal. If we don't have an empowerment to walk this out and fulfill this apostolic mandate, this great commission, if we're not empowered to do it, we can't do it. There's no way. So listen to this. Acts 1, 4, and 5. On one occasion, again, Jesus here in those last days. All this was happening in parallel. So... Luke records one version of it. Mark, this is Luke's account. Mark recorded a version of it from his perspective. And then Matthew recorded a version of it from his perspective. Then you put all their versions together and it creates this clear picture. So here, this is also what happened at the same time. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, and then here's the gift, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I don't know why this freaks people out. Maybe it's because of things we've seen, or maybe some bad experiences, but I read it and I go, yay, we have a gift. There's a promise, and it's mine. Remember what I said? When something goes out, you should reach out and just say, I'll take that. I'll, I'll, I'll take that. That's mine. That's for me. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They were still thinking old school. They were still thinking, okay, now he's resurrected. Man, where's that blazing horse he's going to be riding? Where's that, that, that huge scepter? Where's his crown? Because he's going to now dominate and crush our enemies. And they're still thinking worldly. Jesus has already crushed the head of the serpent, the spiritual enemy. That's what Jesus was there to do. They're still thinking worldly. So when they met together, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But oh, do we try. Do we try. We do. Sorry. Last thing. But you will receive power. Someone say power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. 
And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. That was when he went to sit at the right hand of the Father. You put all those together, you get a picture that Jesus did not leave us without equipment. He said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go and make disciples. But I'm going to give you the power and the ability and the promise of the Father and the gift to do it. You're not left to yourself. So if you think in your mind, well, I'm not smart enough. I'm not theologically trained. I haven't heard enough sermons. I haven't read the Bible enough. Let me tell you something. The Holy Spirit can make up for an entire seminary education in about 30 seconds. And can give you what you need when you need it. That's what he's there for. And so I want to encourage you as we step into this and we start down this path, I want you to know something. My prayer for each of us is that we will have a Paul, we'll have a Barnabas in our life, and that everyone in here will find a Timothy. Someone to walk through this experience. And all you have to be is a few days out ahead. Don't feel like you've got to know it all. You don't. It's not about a person asking you questions. You can share your experience. This is what I've experienced. It's about you saying, here's what the Bible says. Yeah, I've got some experience. I've got some stories I can tell you. I've been there, done that on some of this stuff. But let's just let's see what the Word says. Let's see what the Bible says. And let's align ourselves with that. Amen? And you can walk people through this adventure. And when you align yourself with his will and his ways, I'm telling you, favor, favor, clarity, the fog lifts, and the joy of your salvation is restored because you're now walking in your purpose. Amen? Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for the great commission, the apostolic mandate. You've told us to go. That's what apostolic means, to be sent, to go. So you've called us to go. You've called us to make disciples. you called us to, to teach them, to baptize them. You've called us into this adventure. It's a great adventure. So I pray for my friends right here. Every one of us will have a Paul in our life. We'll have a Barnabas, many in our life. And Father, would you direct us to some Timothys? I pray that even this week there will be encounters and opportunities and that, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, we'll recognize, oh, this is that. This is what Pastor Jimmy was talking about. This, is, this could be my Timothy. So, Lord, would you open up divine connections and divine intersections and, and orchestrate appointments for us to find our Timothys and to begin to take them through this, this simple little book that all it does is redirect us back to the Word back to the scripture. Would you give us the grace and the open doors? We love you. We honor you. In Jesus' name, everyone said amen and amen. God bless you. We love you.